It's the State of the Markets podcast, episode 103. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Akhil Patel. Akhil's expertise is in property, economic and stock market cycles. He's currently a director of Property Share Market Economics, a subscription service to provide investors with guidance on how to take advantage of short and long-term cycles. He's also a contributing editor to The Frontier Tech Investor, published by Southbank Research, and his work has been featured in many professional publications, including the BBC. Welcome to the show, Akhil. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So tell us a bit about how you got involved in the financial markets. You've got a very rich CV. Well, thank you very much. So um, I'm not by training um, uh, an economist or I don't have a background in finance uh, per se. I studied classics at Oxford. Uh, and if you and I graduated in 2000, and if you assessed my knowledge of economics and financial markets 20 years ago, uh, you would have been slightly shocked that it I'm probably been o- only on a par with a central banker, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not even there. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So I, well, if, interestingly enough, um, I went to a school that uh, was quite big on the ideas of this American economist of the 19th century called Henry George. And I think Dominic Frisbee mentioned him uh, in his podcast. Is, is he, the, is he, the, fan, is he the, the origin of Georgism? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's the man. Um, and I mean, actually, I mean, it'd be quite interesting just to say a few words about him in, 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 in due course. If you think that would be of interest to please, him, please, please do. Say, say, hey, well, go for it. Say it now. So, I mean, oh, oh, okay. Uh, so he, um, I mean, to be honest, he's probably the most widely read economist, as in the most people have read him in in economic history. Um, and it said that in the final couple of decades of the nineteenth century. The only book that outsold his masterwork, which was called Progress and Poverty, was the Bible. Um, and what he he basically asked one simple, or two very simple questions: Why do we have such amazingly innovative, progressive economies as they were in in the late nineteenth century, um, and yet we go through these recurring cycles of boom and bust? Uh, and then the other question is: Why is there increasing incidence of relative poverty despite such enormous um, progress. And I mean, these are questions that, you know, we're really still asking ourselves today. And he came up with a, um, an idea that actually it's to ultimately to do the economic, there's an economic cycle and ultimately it's to do with, um, how we use our land, uh, as a sort of factor of production and it's used very inefficiently and it ultimately leads to enormous amounts of speculation. Um, and it draws in the rest of the economy. The economy can't take any more, and then you have a major financial crisis. Um, I sort of touched on these ideas when I was at school. Didn't really pay too much attention to them, but had a sense that if I wanted to go back and you know get to understand economics a bit better, being extremely ignorant as a as an Oxford classicist in uh, the year two thousand, uh, that would be the place to start. And so in two thousand and six, I kind of started studying. That sort of thing. I was also doing a, at that point a master's in finance, um, uh, and thought it might be complementary. Uh, and then the financial crisis happened, and um, it, you know, my family's business is in pharmaceutical wholesaling, and you know, you you would think that if there's any ever any industry which is um, immune to a you know recession and an economic crisis, it would be the pharmaceutical industry, uh, particularly people who are um, selling. Uh, 
you know, pharmaceuticals to independent pharmacies because, you know, if anything, there are more people sick in recessions than in normal times. Uh, and yet um, it was a very difficult time for the, for the family business, Polly, because the banks were withdrawing lines of credit from SMEs. Um, and so, the, you know, the business model, the sort of relatively low margin business model didn't work anymore. Um, and it so happened that I remember a time when I was a teenager when, uh, in the early 90s, when something similar had seemed to have happened. And it was also a difficult time for my family. And I, I, I couldn't understand why people, when talking about the financial crisis, weren't equating the two episodes, because it struck me that they came after a major housing boom, um, you know, one in the late 80s and the other in the sort of late 2000s, uh, led to a major banking crisis. Um, and, you know, SMEs went to the wall and a lot of people lost their jobs. Why people weren't paying more attention to those things. And I thought, well, I'm going to try and investigate why people aren't seeing this and then try and develop a body of knowledge uh, to put out there such that when, as I thought at the time, SMEs, you know, approach the same kind of period in the economy, they can prepare themselves and not have to go through the, you know, the difficult times that my family's business had to go through. And so that's how I became interested in sort of financial markets and, and so on. I mean, I, I I basically apply nothing of what I learned in the masters in finance that I do. Um, so that was yeah, two years well spent. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I took it from there. I went back, read Henry George. I came across, um, the ideas of this American economist called Homer Hoyt, who wrote in the thirties, who, who also himself uh, studied Henry George and discovered that actually this pattern of boom and bust is on average 18 years in length. And it's not even, there's not much variation in that. It is almost exactly every time 18 years. And then I came across um, this book called The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking by actually now my very good friend and business partner, Phil Anderson, uh, who traced that 18-year pattern in US history back to 1800. Uh, and it's incredible how regular it is. What? Sorry, 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 sorry to interrupt, uh, Akil. So is the 18 years, is that basic, is, does that denote a generation? What's the I think, do you think of the 18th yeah, so period? The question, the question that uh, I'm often asked by my readers and by other people is, why is it 18 years? And I don't really have a good answer to that, I'm afraid. Um, yes, I think I think it's basically enough time for everyone to forget mm. the lessons of the previous cycle and all the managers and people who might might have some recollection to have moved on in their careers and a new cohort of people who are fresh-faced and um think that every and you're you know you're kind of told by the media that this is the first time that x is happening and this is all unprecedented and yeah. never a period like this and eventually that morphs into you know this time really is different um to use the sort of famous phrase that um people in financial markets are supposed to be quite wary of um and so yes i think i think that must be the case um the one the one the one that's really and amazingly reliable is in 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 private wealth management in in the history of and evolution of wealthy families. This phrase "shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve" in three generations that you have the the founder who establishes the business and makes the wealth. The the second generation then kind of mismanages it, and by the time the third generation has come on, it's all been dissipated. And it's so it, it's it, it's it has a, an astonishing historical you know track record. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's quite funny. I was, I was talking at a family office real estate, not actually not real estate, family office wealth conference um, this time last year, and that came up. Um, actually, it was quite interesting because I thought if there's ever any body of people who would want to know about sort of, sort of this recurring pattern of boom and bust, it would be family offices because they do, you know, they're set up to manage wealth over sort generations. Of generations. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, didn't get much traction. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, yeah, that's kind of how I came to be kind of studying um, economics and financial markets. Now, the, the thing that I've done for my readers, which I think is probably a bit more than uh, some of the other people I mentioned, was that if you take, so I've got a data set of the Dow Jones or the broad US market back to 1800s. And you, you, I mean, I can I'm more than happy to share this diagram. You can basically cut that up into 18 and a half year segments and sort of normalize the data so you can combine them. Uh, and you indeed see this 18 year pattern. And so at the end, so it's, you know, it affects the stock market as well, as you, as you might imagine, because, you know, there is some relationship between the stock market and the economy, albeit that um, at the current time, some people are questioning that. Um, and the median fall in the in the Dow or the broadest U.S. Uh, index. Um, so obviously prior to 18 something, it was recreated. Um, is the median fall at the end of the cycle is 48%. Um, and the range is sort of 90% of the crash in 1929 to 1932. Um, and I think the smallest one was 25%, which was in the early 90s. But the thing that we have to factor in now is that the cycle is global. So as you know, as economies have joined the global trading system and global financial system, as you know, as most economies have now, you see the uh, the pattern which you know is very apparent in the UK and the US since um, the beginning of the 19th century. You see it in other countries, and the most obvious example in the early 90s was Japan. Mm. Um, so Japan had an enormous property boom in the 80s, and then the Nikkei, the crash in the Nikkei. Well, I mean, you know, maybe you know, you know, best than I do. I mean, it's they had, I mean, in a sense, they had. They took the entire rest of the next cycle to to recover from. Um, the banking system was so so clogged up with um, uh, you know property assets that they then they didn't. They you know, I think the UK and the US have got rather good at at least keeping the show on the road at the end of these cycles. Um, the Japanese didn't um, and, and suffered for it. So just a couple of questions on that. The yeah. wh- When you say there's an 18-year cycle, is that peak to peak or trough to trough or peak to trough? And a follow-up to that, where the million-dollar question is, where are we in the current cycle in yeah. the UK okay. and Western markets? Yeah, or indeed global markets. Yeah. Um, right. So, yeah, this. I mean, I'm happy to share this diagram as well. So it's, it's peak to peak or trough to trough. I mean, the cycle... Um, it, you, you typically get 14 years of expansion, four years of crash, crisis, recovery. Mm. Uh, that's kind of on average. I mean, it, there is some, there is a little bit of variation to some of these phases within each cycle. Uh, and then the 14 years of expansion is typically two seven-year halves interrupted by a mid-cycle slowdown. Um, and so, um, and and the timing of the mid-cycle slowdown, I think, is probably the most variable bit in the overall cycle. Um, sometimes it comes, you know, it's a few years into the first half of the cycle. Sometimes it's a, the first half is a bit longer. Um, so now, where are we? So the previous peak was around 2007, maybe 2006. You could argue in the US, and the and it, the current the present cycle didn't really get underway until 2011, 2012. Um, mm. I mean, in the UK, we were still talking about triple dip recession at the start of 2012. Yeah. Uh, and you often, you, there's often one sort of big blowout event, which kind of marks the end of the previous cycle and the bottom and, uh, and the, and, and the start of the new one. It's not necessarily the bottom of the stock market because, you know, stock markets tend to be slightly ahead of events. Um, and for me, it was the sort of the breaking of the LIBOR scandal in 2012. I mean, it was the final I think the final really big bit of news about how kind of 
you know, corrupt people were doing corrupt things um, in the previous cycle that I think kind of fully, you know, it didn't clear the decks because obviously we're living with some of the consequences of the, of the, of the previous cycle still. But, you know, I think it was all, at least in the U S and the UK, it was all out there uh, from that point on. Um, so, I, 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 we're now clearly in a recession. So we're at the mid cycle. Um, I had sort of actually for, you know, money week cover story in 2014 said that 2018 or 2019 would be the recessionary year. Uh, and I think, you know, you know, obviously COVID is, is an interesting layer on top of the natural rhythm of the cycle. But, you know, to my mind, we were definitely slowing down into, into late 2019, um, and you know, you don't always get a technical recession at the mid cycle. I mean, during the last one, which was in 2001, at the equivalent point, um, I mean, the U S had six month recession, the UK actually managed technically to avoid it. And, um, given that Gordon Brown since 97 had been saying, well, I'm coming here to tame the boom bust cycle. And the fact that the UK didn't go into recession at the midpoint of the last cycle was sort of perfect validation that he had indeed tamed the boom bust cycle, um, but you just uh, kill, but actually, you just create a bigger problem though when you try you to prevent create, it. Create, well, and, and also the other thing is the second half of the cycle, second seven year expansionary half, is the more is the more bullish, the more speculative half. Um, and so if you've kind of if you've reassured everyone that um, you have tamed the boom bust cycle, I mean they you know they're more likely to launch straight in into the markets. And 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 you know the, it's been interesting feature of the first half of this cycle, and I think it's the first half of every. Of every cycle, you we, you know, we 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 spend most of the first seven years looking backwards to the previous crisis, uh, and I think that was certainly true between 2012 and 2018. And indeed, um, you know, as soon as markets started to panic in March, late February and March, I mean, immediately all the headlines were coming out about, oh no, this is the worst thing since you know Lehman Brothers collapsed, and are we returning to the Great Depression? And you know, it, it was prop- the property market on the brink of collapse and, you know, uh, all this sort of thing. I mean, it was clear that, you know, that people hadn't forgotten. I think what what you tend to get at the mid-cycle is um, you get, I mean, you get governments intervening in, in the economy. Um, uh, it, you know, tends to work. Uh, and then you get, you'll get, you know, you will get, we'll get this in the next sort of 12 months, politicians then saying, well, we know how to manage the economy. And, you know, people kind of agreeing because things do turn around. You know, I'm not saying it's perfect by any stretch, but no, there's been no cycle in history where things have been perfect. There's always been problems and things to worry about. It's just a feature of our economic system. And, um, but the narrative will change dramatically and people won't be looking back at the financial crisis anymore. They'll be looking, they might be looking back to, um, to COVID and, and, and that to a certain extent, I think will be, will spin as a positive story. And, um, now in addition to all of that, we, uh, we have all this additional liquidity sloshing around the system. I actually think, and I, I've said this even before coronavirus, the 2020s will, will be the biggest boom in human history, because uh, it's a global one. And it's, it's one where, where the poles of growth are not just the US and the West. I mean, it's also the East and with, led by China. Um, I mean, there's just so much innovation going on, so much infrastructure going in. And this is all great for land values and induces lots of speculation ultimately. Um, and we're becoming more integrated financially. So so it's, I think, just going to be absolutely enormous. And if if I said, if I said it was going to be the biggest boom of all time, 
before coronavirus, I now say it's, you know, I, I double that. I mean, it's just, it's, I think it's going to be absolutely enormous. You know, we, we have to be careful as investors. You don't, you know, you, we'll all get sucked into it to a certain extent, um, you know, despite our best efforts. Um, so you just have to, you know, have some due regards to all the good stuff in terms of preserving capital and managing risk and so on. So, uh, so Akil, you, effectively you're saying that, um, that, it it doesn't you know, the, the the precise nature it 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 doesn't really matter whether COVID nineteen had happened or not because the market would still it, there'd just be some other thing that the market would be worrying about right now as a sort of as a late cycle correction is, is, is that is that yeah, mid cycle mid cycle recession mid cycle uh, correction yes I mean I think you know if you looked at the PMI figures and so on other economic data and industrial figures in late twenty nineteen. You know, it, it seemed to me quite clearly that the global economy is was was slowing, and it you know after seven years of expansion, you know with, with um, you know some of the issues that that brings, including high you know fairly high property prices relative to to where things were, and you know an element of um, monetary tightening and other things, you do tend to get a pause. Um, if we hadn't had COVID, probably that would have played out more easily. But then the government intervention in the market wouldn't have been quite so significant. What we have is a much more significant event, i.e., at least in March, total panic. Yeah. Uh, and then the unpre- and then you know clearly you know an economy can't function when everyone's sitting at home. Um, mm. uh, and so there are obviously going to be very significant consequences, particularly for certain industries and sectors. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, the reaction of um, government and other things to that has been commensurately significant as well, um, and to, to push things back. And you know, we might the the counterfactual is if we hadn't had coronavirus, probably the economy that emerged in the twenty twenties would be somewhat different to the one that will emerge now. Um, but from what I've seen, is while you know clearly there are some sectors that are going to have some very significant long term consequences. Ultimately, most of what's happened is accelerated trends that were already in place. Yeah. I'm not sure yeah. that there's anything really genuinely new that might emerge out of this. It just might happen five years more quickly than it might otherwise have happened. Because the point of order that I would make, because I mean, the, the, the the outlook that you paint is, uh, I, I find sort of surprisingly positive in the light of sort of looking at the world through the prism of all these shuttered industries like hospitality and cruises and airlines and energy and all the rest of it. Um, but the, the point of order that I make to people is, you know, this isn't, What's happening in the markets is not a function of coronavirus. It's a function of a gov- the government, the mass governmental mishandling of, of 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 dealing with it. So, I mean, as a as a as a good Austrian school thinker, I, I'm I'm thinking, you know, that this this grotesque, you know, liquidity splurge that's happening now feels a lot like you know what Mises would have called the crack up boom when. You know, far, far from markets collapsing, everyone stampedes into real assets because they're terrified of the inflationary outlook for for, for holding money, say, in, in cash. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so I'm not myself an Austrian economist. Um, well, it's been lovely having you on the show, Akil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, but there is, there is, you know, I think ultimately the um, the kind of Georgist school, I mean, I, if it, you could even really call it that uh, anymore, Um has something in common with the Austrians, and that is they do see they do see a a, a role, uh, sorry, a limited role for government. Uh, I, I mean, the Austrians, I think, are, are probably a bit more extreme than the Georgists. They're often referred to as an anarcho-libertarian. Georgist, I mean, Georgist people 
there is a theory of government embedded in in, in Henry George's yeah. ideas, and and that's basically so. So I mean, I think Dominic said it in his book, and when he came on your show, that um, you know. You know, all tax should be abolished other than a location usage, in his terms, location usage charge. I mean, Henry George called it a single tax. And, yeah. um, you know, the people who um, are supporters of it, such as myself, call it a land value tax. It's the, a tax on the unimproved value of the land, which reflects the quality of public investment. And so the role for government in that is simply to, to you know, have this sort of right legal framework uh, to ensure security of tenure for people who own property to um provide some means of valuing the um well the economic rent is, is a technical term and then some means of ensuring it's collected and then redistributed and it doesn't have to be done by government i mean it you know it's quite interesting some of the in in, in the uh, run-up to brexit and um some of the subsequent debate people have talked about places like singapore and hong kong now i mean they have you know various there's, there's various reasons why they're success stories, but one thing they both have in common is they do collect for the public um, a, a significant proportion of the economic rent. Uh, and in the case of Singapore, a lot of it is then put into a sovereign wealth fund, um, Temasek, which is then used to invest in the economy and invest in, in assets um, elsewhere. So so uh, it doesn't have to be government, but the point is that the only, you know, the yardstick for whether or not government is doing a good job is whether or not the economic rent, which is really a sign of progress, as Henry George pointed out, and he was he was following David Ricardo in that, mm. whether the economic rent is increasing as a result of, of public investment, and that is only the only role of government. And so, you know, you you need to have defence because, you know, clearly people are worried about, you know, whether or not someone's going to invade, then the rent will go down. But if it if you feel secure, then that allows an economy to flourish and, and that will you know, lead to you know, progress and increasing rent. Do you, do you think that in the light of what's happening with A, coronavirus, and B, you know, again, the, 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 the international governmental response, that the, the sort of the golden age of globalisation is now behind us? It sounds from what you've been suggested that, that, that that's not something that you would personally believe. I, yeah, I mean... That's a, it's an interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I mean, in in one sense, yes. I mean, because I think I think we can I think we can all probably envisage fairly easily envisage a world in which the sort of the shutters come down and everything gets a lot more localized as a as a as a pure political response to you know what China's done. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree. I think I think you know the length of supply chains and uh, and onshoring manufacturing and other things. I think I think that's I think that is uh, going to happen. But to be honest, that is. Um, for creating for creating a boom locally, I mean that that's great. I mean that that's you know increasing demand for sites in the local in your in your location, uh, and um, you know because we don't have a rapidly growing population and you know there's more control potentially more control on immigration and so on, you know that causes um, you know might lead to a measure of wage increase. Well, I was just going to say that if you take, if you effectively sort of take China or part of China out of the out of the economic loop, then that that has to imply higher wages for domestic workers in the, in the greater scheme of things. Yeah, and which will then inevitably end up in the land market, um, uh, as as George pointed out. Uh, and so, you know, that's the thing: is the surplus of progress always ends up because land is a fixed and finite um, factor of production uh, and unique, whereas you know, capital and labour is mobile. Um, uh, and uh, you know where, and they're, they're subject to competition. Uh, and so, if you know 
one industry is earning higher wages, then, uh, you know, you get more movement of labor into that industry and, uh, and brings back wages and so on. So, you know, it's the usual, the usual stuff, it, but so the, the cream of progress ends up in the land markets. And so by the, by the way, when I say land, I mean, any natural resource freely provided with by nature, which has no production cost. Um, so, um, the electromagnetic spectrum is now, um, you know, the kind of increasing importance to the modern economy. Uh, and that is, that is the source of economic rent, which, um, which, uh, you know, um, companies like Amazon and Google and so on are, are benefiting hugely from. Well, sorry, what do you mean by that? That's uh, the electromagnetic spectrum. Well, so the ability to, the ability to conduct economic activity over, you know, <laughs> wireless signals i mean oh, okay. and, and so on i mean that that is that's effectively that i mean that's a form of land and so land is not just it's anything provided freely by nature um and with public investment so um you know largely on you know making sure that everyone's connected and etc cetera, etc cetera, and uh that has enormous economic value which um some companies have become exceedingly good at um exploiting um which is, you know, one of the reasons why they're the most valuable companies in the world. And interestingly, they are themselves moving into kind of more real economy assets. So, you know, I mean, it's not, I don't think we're a million years away from sort of Apple providing mortgage finance and, yes. uh, and, 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 and Google providing banking services and, and so on. So you'll yeah. get, you know, one form of economic rent um, being recycled into another. I mean, the, the potential for speculative activity off the back of that is just really quite enormous. Yes. You, you talk about interest rates or you talk about property prices and the cycle. Mm. Um, I see that more as a function of where interest rates are and the interest rate cycle, which I guess it's looking at through a different, slightly different lens, but a very similar lens. In 2005, 2006, we'd gone through a massive period of property boom speculation. And mm. it was quite clear from many uh, non-market areas that the, yeah. the market was just getting really hot, like the number of estate agents, the number of yeah. people who were switching. When from, a taxi driver talks about property, exactly. property for, yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> and what was what's very interesting about what you said earlier, that I always placed the the high the high point around or the warning signs around 2005 2006 mm, yeah, because that's yeah. where the the banking stocks and where the property stocks actually topped out and they they're so interest rate cyclically sensitive that mm. they will always forward look a problem and that is that was the lead into the crisis now mm. part, at that time there was very loose lending going on and yeah. you know the As there always is yeah. At the end of the summer. Yes. We don't have that at the moment. In fact, we probably got the opposite. The banks yeah. seem to be making it increasingly mm. difficult to borrow mm. money. And mm. therefore, the, the outlook and, and given the, the nature of the economy and people's jobs, etc., it does appear to be that, that we, we would be looking at a, a short-term correction that would take mm. us perhaps into a shakeout that would then lead to this big boom that you're talking about. Um, would you say that's a fair assessment of, of how things might play out over the next sort of six to 18 months? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So, so um, we didn't, we didn't lead into this uh, recession with a major property boom. Uh, you know, you could argue, well, you know, central London's very expensive. Yes, it is. But um, that's kind of, and again, and that's another feature of the cycle. Um, I, which I can talk about. Um, yes, banks were, were, you know, banks have not been particularly loose with their lending 
if you've ever tried to get a mortgage in the last few years, you will know that. Um, and um, the shakeout, you know, and clearly they're not lending much in a recession. The shakeout will, as you say, happen over the next sort of year or so, I think. Um, banks, I think, will be relatively cautious even after that. Um, and it, and so there's, I mean, there's two things. One is that, you know, as things start to get better, you know, then you, then they're, then jockeying for market share and, and so on and doing more things. And as, as property prices continue to go up, I mean, you know, uh, particularly relative to wages, you get more and more sort of products to help people get onto the property ladder. So it's, whether it be, um, you know, 95% loan to value mortgages, or I think what we'll probably get is financial assistance to help you with your down payment. Um, uh, uh, so on. So, uh, so you get, you get that and it becomes looser and looser. But I think the other thing I'd say to that is it doesn't, it doesn't, it might mean that UK banks are relatively well regulated from the point of view of lending to the property market, but you get other forms of finance that sometimes come in, whether it be from other, you know, from other banks that have the right to um, that to to uh, lend into the UK market, but maybe not quite as well governed, or that you, you know, can all argue whether banks are well governed or not. But um, uh, or you have alternative sources of finance, so shadow banks, um, and maybe some tech companies thinking that they've kind of the banking system is ripe for disruption, uh, and isn't that isn't this and, and mortgage lending is a very lucrative activity. Um, Thinking they want a, a, a share of the pie, um, and you know, you, in, or some sort of crowdfunding platform which um, divvies up mortgages into little bits for people, or indeed something to do with the blockchain. Uh, you're seeing starting to see fractional ownership of property um, recorded on the blockchain, and so you might, you know, you know, I don't know, this is pure speculation now, but maybe one day you'll have the blockchain, uh, so the crypto. Um, property share index or something and you're trading you know slices of a flat in monaco uh, on a some kind of stock exchange that's powered by the blockchain um uh, and, and you know kind of you know speculation that way i mean i think the sources of the the dimensions of this are actually more complicated now it's a bit harder to follow so you, it's not just a case of following what the banks are up to and indeed i think at the end of the cycle we all tend to need to be looking the wrong way um, and, and so, um, you know, it probably won't be the big banks that are going to cause the problem. Uh, and it may not even necessarily be the U S or the UK where it starts. Um, in fact, I'd be surprised if it were because, you know, they were so heavily involved in, in the, in the global financial crisis and the outbreak there that, um, you know, it could be Germany, which is having quite a hot, it's got a, quite a hot property markets and that would be, have enormous consequences for the Euro, um, or it could be, you know, I mean, China, I think people, a lot of people are talking about China uh, quite a lot anyway. Uh, it could be India or some of these other new stories that emerge in the 2020s. You, you paint a very uh, positive picture in the outlook for, you know, fintech, to, for want of a better phrase. Uh, for some time, I mean, probably going back to before 2008, I've been, say, wary of banks as as investments, say, listed banks as, as investments, because they just never stacked up on their Finances were always far too opaque. I, in the light of what you've just said about you know, the potential for you know, with, with new types of business and crypto um, aspects, I'm minded to recall a quote that's attributed to Bill Gates, I think, um, which is that bank, banking is necessary, but banks aren't. I, what strikes me is, is now why anybody would own bank stocks. seems to me just the, 
you know, an accident waiting to happen to the extent that if you look at, say, what's happening in the immediate, you know, in the sort of the immediate coronavirus world, banks are now just being bullied around by governments to, to lend on their behalf. But in other words, they're not they're not even free market entities, assuming they ever were. Um, they're just they're just effectively arms of the state, and that's not something that gives me a tremendous amount of comfort. Yeah, I mean, you could be right. Do you? I mean, do, 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 to, to what extent does your analysis take in? You know, say company specific things, or is it, is it much more broadly thematic than that? I mean, it's quite thematic, but I, you know, I, I would only look to see who is lending the money to for people to buy and sell real estate, because that's mm. you know, you you know, whoever's doing that is earning a lot of money and interest. Um, yeah, you know, and it's it is uh, asset prices are inflating and sitting the second half of the cycle, and uh, you know, people pay off their loans and then they can, you know, relend to, uh, you know, acquire the same piece of property again and someone else paying the interest at a higher price. So um, it's not, so yeah, you're right. It's not, um, it is company specific in the sense that if banks are not able to do that much, then they are not, you know, they probably won't make as much money. Um, uh, they probably won't uh, be particularly well run. And so you wouldn't want to invest in them. And they, and they, it, because of, their relative lack of involvement in the property market in an overheated property market, they probably then, um, and this may be maybe something that you wouldn't necessarily agree with. I think they wouldn't, wouldn't potentially collapse as much, uh, in the downturn as they certainly did in 2008, mm. uh, but something else will, uh, and it's trying to identify what that is. The only, I mean, the only th- other thing I'd say about this is that, I mean, the banking license is, I mean, it is a, in a sense. I mean, you can get forms of economic rent that are government created by the mm. licensing system. Um, you know, taxi licenses being being a very good example, which is one of the reasons why companies like Uber that managed to get into that were were so valuable. Um, uh, the the bank the, the, the banking license gives a bank the power to create money out of nothing, mm. um, and that is enormously valuable. It's just that. The, the mortgage market dwarfs lending to the real economy by, you know, orders of magnitude. And that's why if banks don't have part of that action, then, but they can lend to SMEs. It's not, it's not nearly as lucrative. Um, so I'd be surprised if they weren't um, somehow able to find a way or there's massive consolidation or something. I don't know. Um, uh, or it might be that um, some of these newer banks that have found a way in at much lower cost um, take up the reins. Do you have a view, a fundamental view on inflation, inflation in the, let's say the real economy rather than just inflation in asset price terms? Is price inflation something that 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 is also moves in a long cycle? Yes, it is. I mean, there's so there's there's two halves to that to that answer. So, okay, so I mean, this I just want to go back to something Paul said. So you you tend to have. Um, in the run-up to the each peak, so I mean, it's often at the mid-cycle and at the end of the cycle. In the run-up to that, you do get a pickup in inflation in relative terms. So if you've had a few years of very low inflation, you will find inflation rising into the peak, and then interest rates will be rising as well. Um, and, you know, when you've had a period of property speculation, rising interest rate is what ultimately tips the market over. Um, and that takes, you know, a couple of years to play out probably. So, yes, I do think we will see higher price inflation um in the coming years. Now, whether it will, we get to a 70s style, you know, inflation, I don't think so. And the reason I say that is, um, is I look at a very long-term cycle called the great wave, um, which was sort of first documented by this historian, I think, well, maybe he's an economist or economic historian called David Hackett Fisher, who, mm. who pointed out that inflation, price inflation goes in great waves 
of about a century long, and then you get price stability for about another century. Um, and he said in when he was writing in '96, I think he published his book, which um, is actually a great read. I mean, he writes very well um, for an academic. Because that, that, sorry to interrupt. So that, that that that's that's borne out, if if nothing else, by you know very loosely the Victorian era, I, the 19th century, basically had no inflation, and then the 20th century had bucket loads of stuff. Exactly, and then and then and it's likely that the 21st will have a period of relative stability. And then there are certain features within that. Um, you get, in, in real terms, wages rise. Um, actually, it was yields on yields on property um, are relatively low, uh, which actually suggests that maybe capital increase in property, so um, property price increases are not as significant as we've seen over the last sort of, you say, the first decade of of the twentieth, twenty uh, first century. Um, they kind of have a, you know, you, you might have bouts of speculation, but then things might correct more significantly or they, you know, what appears to be more of a, um, rather than the sort of exponential growth we got from about 1950 to 2007, um, you might not get quite the same sort of level. It just be almost permanently high. Um, I don't know because, I mean, I think what he didn't sort of wasn't able to analyze because we didn't have it in the same way as how, how this plays out globally, because, you know, before it, his, his, I think he started studying it from the point of view of I think the earliest years was sort of 1400s or something. And it's very much based upon European price data. Um, whereas now, of course, most of the growth will be outside Europe. Um, uh, and so if you, I mean, maybe the inflation thesis doesn't hold, but even if it does, maybe you still get major periods of, um, property price appreciation in countries that are going from zero to whatever they're going to, given the sort of demographics and other things. Um, so there's probably not a very clear answer, but I mean, these are the sort of trends and parts of the puzzle that I'm trying to put together as we look forward over the next sort of few years. What are your, uh, if you like, sort of top tips at a, a thematic or sectoral level at the moment? For the next few years? Yeah. There are certain patterns in previous um, cycles, which I don't know, I'm not yet, convinced will repeat and i know i shouldn't really say that given that i study this <laughs> thing uh, but um so you typically tend to find that the first half of the cycle tech stocks do much better than this sort of broader indices and then the second half of the cycle broader indices do better than 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 tech stocks so if if um which i find quite surprising looking forward but you know if we go with that i mean i think probably for me the the issue is that tech will be disrupting a lot of sort of industrial arenas uh, and so on. And so tech stocks might become the kind of industrial stocks that did better in the second half of each cycle. So thematically, I'd be looking at, um, you know, kind of more broad industrials, obviously property, house building, anything related to the ancillary services associated with sort of housing booms. Um, uh, I'm looking at infrastructure. I mean, I, you know, enormous build out and that, you know, I suppose we have to say that would include digital infrastructure. Um, you know, ultimately, to acquire a piece of land, you need finance. So, whoever's providing finance for that um, uh, is certainly something I think will 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 tend to do well in the next sort of five to seven years. Uh, and also, um, commodities. Uh, so, so commodity prices rise on the back of um, of you know major housing and infrastructure booms. Um, so, um, industrial commodities, but also there is a. Um, I'm also a big sort of proponent of this long wave or this um, uh, Kondratiev wave 
Uh, and uh, while a lot of analysts of the Kondratiev wave say we're in the in the winter, actually, I think we're we're approaching the peak. And so another reason why I think this will be a very big boom is um, we're getting you know, and you only get this once every sixty or so years that both the property cycle, the second half of the property cycle, and the Kondratiev wave peaking at the same time uh, in the mid to late twenty twenties. Uh, and the if for those who don't haven't heard of the Kondratiev wave, it's a wave of 60-year cycles in commodity prices, 25 to 30 years up and 25 to 30 years down. Um, and so we're approaching the peak of that. So commodity prices should do should be quite quite strong. And so on the back of a booming global property and infrastructure boom, uh, I think you'll get high commodity prices as well. So those are the and then obviously companies that benefit from that. And that you know that also includes you know precious metals. I think. Mm-hmm. There will be increasing concerns about potentially inflation, but also, um, you know, at some point, the health of the financial system, monetary stability, yeah, and so on. And so, gold will, uh, gold will do well. Yes, I mean, I'm not. I think, on the whole, it sort of tends to follow the commodity cycle um, quite closely. But, um, you know, in in the aftermath of of the end of the cycle crisis, and also, I suppose, to a certain extent, the run up to it. Gold, uh, gold tends to pick up. I mean, you, I can't say that so definitively because for much of the history of the cycle, gold has been fixed uh, yeah. in, in price and so on. So there's not, you know, there's not much data. But certainly since 1971, it seems to be the case. I was going to ask actually, because you beat me to the the question of the Kondratiev cycle, because yeah. from memory, the mm-hmm. uh, trying to point the like stick the pin in where we are now is quite a difficult yeah. call. I thought because there were so many signs potentially in a great contrary call to say that we'd be going into a deflationary uh, cycle, um, mainly because nobody else was looking at it. And we've had inflation for so long that people weren't even thinking about the, the prospects of deflation. But if you look yeah. at the Kondratiev cycle, it's, it's very yeah. interesting because it does show that in order to get the deflationary bust, you have to have virtually hyperinflation, which we haven't had. So this is always something that's sort of bothered me about, you know, I, I, I personally thought, and I, my, my call was that, that we would see a deflationary um, cycle coming forward, um, given how much the, the system was, is being held back by poor lending, mm-hmm. um, mm. et cetera, and how the mm-hmm. central banks are trying to counter that, but ultimately the market kind of decides. But mm-hmm. that part of it was a piece of the puzzle that didn't quite fit it mm. didn't quite mm. sit right with it and so mm. this is a very interesting thing you're saying here that that actually the this Kondratiev cycle hasn't played out is still to play out and therefore whether we get if we get a period of deflation it would just be temporary and actually we should be looking at longer term buying opportunities for all all assets because there is still a big boom to come yeah um so i don't this is these this is sort of it's a relatively complicated question and, you know, I, by no means the only, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion and debate and disagreement amongst people who study these uh, long-term Definitely. cycles. Yeah. So my, so my, so my take, if you go back to Kondratiev's original writing, um, I don't think he really talks about inflation in quite the same way that we do. Um, uh, uh-huh. He was, he was documenting, um, you know, commodity prices per se, and then said that you tend to get, um, at least taken from a global point of view, you tend to get bigger. So the features of the upside of the Kondratiev wave are um, 
shorter and sharper recessions, um, uh, more years of prosperity. Now, we can come back to that because, I mean, I know we've talked about, you know, we could talk about, well, there's been a lost decade for a lot of Western economies. Um, uh, and uh, you, you tend to get, they are very highly disruptive in terms of technology. Um, so in the, in the downside of each Kondratiev wave, you get a lot of technological development and it's the application of that technology in the upside, which really actually, in, in fact, to a certain extent, drives the way forward. I mean, we certainly have had that. Uh, and you get, in, and this is more of a socioeconomic p- uh, point, you get greater incidents of revolution and war um, in in the upside of, of the Kondratiev wave. Now, in, so d- I think we've had all of those. You might argue, well, maybe not the prosperity, but actually our recessions have been relatively short and sharp. Um and if you take, if you look at it from a global perspective, um, I mean, I think it is true to say that relative to the downside of the Kondratiev wave, which started in the late 70s uh, and ended in 2000, 2001, um, the, uh, the incidents of years of prosperity taken globally have been greater. I mean, it, obviously, from a Western-centric point of view, the 90s was a, a great period because, you know, post-Cold um, War and so on. And the start of the internet boom. Um, but actually, I don't think, uh, I think from a Kondratiev point of view, I mean, we had certainly had a major downturn in commodity prices for the entire decade. Um, and um, uh, so I, I, you know, I, 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 I stand by my thesis that actually we're on the upside. Um, and um, the, 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 sorry, and to go back to Tim's point, the other theme that I'm also looking at, and this is linked to the Kondratiev wave, is you... <coughs> invariably get the great powers of the day becoming increasing co- increasingly confrontational as you approach the peak of um, the peak of the k wave uh, and so of course you know thematically defense stocks and anything related to that sort of the domains of that confrontation which could be in many arenas by the way this mm. time um i think would also be an investment theme for the next few years uh, and uh, you know when when obama was president of the us i didn't really see quite how you'd get sort of the outright China-US confrontation. Well, the Obama administration looks with hindsight like a really fluffy, fluffy and confrontational one by comparison to Trump. Yes, exactly. But And it's quite interesting because probably the only issue that now unites both sides of the US Congress is the China issue. So, mm. so I think it's inevitable that they're going to be some kind of major conflict. And now whether that's a hot war or if it's a cold war, or if it's a trade war, or if it's something in cyberspace. Well, it, it's it's already some of the latter. It's already a cold war and a trade war and a technology war. So the only thing that's missing is, you know, the exchange of uh, fire. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it may be that, um, uh, you know, something the J- Japanese do drags America into something. You know, you, who knows where it'll start, but I think it, it, it's coming. Well, it, it started already and it will it will escalate. So it's not, you know, and that of course is not great. I mean, and maybe it's not going to be firing bullets at each other over the bow of a ship or whatever it is. Um, but you know, if in these highly networked economies of Chinese hack into our electricity mm. grid and so on, I mean, it's going to be coronavirus will seem, you know, a walk in the park, you know, quite literally by comparison. So, mm. um, you know, it's, you know, there are, these are the, the backdrop to investing in the 2020s. While I think it's going to be, you know, for, for well for well managed investments, um, I think it's going to be really really great time. Um, the the backdrop is going to be increasingly turbulent, and so I don't think it'll be a particularly comfortable time to be investing in market. Do you have a, a, any country preferences? Well, I mean, I really liked the chart of the FTSE 100. Uh, so I, I'm more of a 
kind of a chartist. I like I like the look of charts, and I fight, you know try to identify trends and then sort of jump on trends. Um, you know, I thought we were going to have a massive, massive kind of breakout. Um, uh, but you know, unfortunately, it doesn't look quite as good at the moment. Um, so, I mean, I, look, I think a lot of action will still be in the US. I mean, you know, despite the many problems it has, it has. And to be honest, America's always had problems. I mean, I don't think uh, they, they became crazy in the last sort of uh, five years. They've always mm. been slightly crazy, to be honest. Um, uh, but I think, you know, highly innovative, hardworking um, uh, 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 economy, um, anyway, Warren Buffett always talks it up and I, I totally agree with him actually in that sense. Um, so if you're from a commodities point of view, you know, Australia or some of the Canada or the, um, you know, Latin America, uh, it doesn't seem like it now, but I think, you know, once it gets underway, that's, that's quite good. But, you know, I, I suppose Asia is where the action is going to be probably, you know, particularly if re- reducing reliance on China uh, means more reliance on places like Vietnam or Korea and so on. And I think, um, I think that's the thing. And, and, and I'd love to be able to say that actually the, the country that will, you know, given where my family's from, uh, the country that will sort of lead the way in the next few years will be India. But, um, I think that remains to be seen. It still has a number of structural and political issues that it needs to resolve. It is possible. I mean, uh, I, I take the point, but it is possible to see a, a, a partial pivot by the West away from China towards India. Because, I mean, the thing that really irritates me is the number of people in fund management that bang on about ESG. And these are all the same people who are throwing money into China, despite the fact it's a completely loathsome regime. Whereas the one things that well some some of the things that India's got in its favour, firstly it's a democracy, and secondly it's you know it's got this sort of English heritage and the rule of law. So that in in a contest with China, India stacks up pretty well. It does, yes, and demographically it's it's great, and you've got you know people are really hungry to do well, and they 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 what they you know I think mental from a mentality point of view, the West and India really kind of understand each other much better. Um, I mean, it doesn't have I mean it's you know it's surrounded by countries that don't like it very much and it doesn't like very much so you know it's it's and it's um you know it's very dependent on imports for basic materials and so on and so you know there are some there are some very positive sides to it there's some very negative sides but you know when you get a good story it doesn't really matter the negative Mm. stuff i mean it, it can it can take off and you know Given well, the, the, neg- the negative stuff actually helps because it perpetuates the, you know, the investor reticence, which enables you to establish a position. Well, that's very true, indeed. Yes, yes, that's very true. Um, and you know, it's it, given the future is, you know, very tech dominated and even more so post coronavirus. I mean, I think um, India's got a very strong story in that respect as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'd I'd love to say that the biggest um, the biggest market in the twenty twenties will be the Indian one. Um, uh, but uh, you know, it'll certainly be part, of, you know, very much part of the mix. What do you think are the other challenges for India? Um, I mean, it's it has a legacy of state socialism uh, right from independence to the early nineties, which it's still playing through. Um, I, you know, I think it's it's kind of losing some of its secular democratic roots. I, I feel. I mean, I don't. To be honest, I'm not an expert in India, and I don't. I don't know. If, there's, there's sort of something at the, the sort of national level which is not matched at the local level, but it seems to me that, you know, to for someone to come in and, and sort of with a kind of um, policy approach that, um, that that the prime current prime minister has, I, I mean, I, I disagree with a lot of his policy and a lot of his way of doing things. 
Um, and, and so I kind of fear for that um, sort of turn to sort of slightly more authoritarian way of governing, which I, you know, I don't think, I think you want India to be sort of unruly and hard to govern and just people just getting on with it basically and not having, you know, disbanding with a sort of licensing sim with licensing system which kind of basically just seems to be a way of giving <laughs> people who don't have any skills jobs to stop other people who do have skills doing stuff so um there's there's that there's obviously still very much rampant and systemic corruption which you know clearly is not great for an efficient economy um it's i don't know agriculturally and in terms of its reliance on um kind of imports of raw materials how now, I don't, I don't know how resilient its supply chains are. Um, I, I just don't, I genuinely don't know. I, I'm, I'm not saying it, it, it may be good, it may not be good. Um, so I think those are some of the things. And it's also surrounded by countries, you know, I mean, China's Belt and Road Initiative. If you look at it on a map, I mean, it's kind of encircling India. So, um, you know, that's that's a challenge it will need to overcome. Um, it's got it's got border disputes with its two major nuclear-armed neighbours, Um uh, and you know, feeding that population is is a, is a challenge. And, and and in addition to all of that, um, you know, its reliance on the Himalayan belt for water and other things is is um, challenged with um, you know changing weather patterns and so on. So so there are some you know structural, institutional, political, geopolitical issues that it has, but it also has some very strong fundamentals, as Tim pointed out. Uh, the the only reason why I I wanted to get more detail on that was partly because uh, I'd mentioned that I thought there were challenges in India, but I didn't actually specify what they were on a previous podcast. And one of our listeners got very upset with me for saying that, um, you know, I thought there were challenges there and it was inverted commas sort of unfair. And that kind of wasn't <laughs> what I was saying at all. It yeah. was more on the lines of what you've just said there, although you've put yeah. it far more eloquently than I I did, um, that the corruption part was mainly my biggest worry. And I hope that that gets sorted out because the country has a vast talent of, yes, of people. It and it's just, it seems that the people that seem to benefit from it are kind of Western economies. And that's, that to me tells me that something's going slightly wrong there because you should, I'm sure there are some amazing tech companies and startups and what have you there, but really they could be leading the world. If we're, if we're just pinching their talent, and using them in, in our companies and, and uh, you know American tech companies, then there must be some way of 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 utilizing that 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 what what is very valuable resource to um, to their own benefit. So it, it is a shame that there are some some challenges there, but there's still time. So let's hope that, yeah. like you say, that uh, things will change. Yeah, I mean, people in the West, uh, you know, people from India in the West, who I mean, they they maintain very strong links with with people back home and, you know, if they're making decisions for a Western company about where to locate certain offices and things, I mean, if they're, if they're from Indian origin, they understand the market and how to get business done. I mean, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think, you know, the, they, I mean, in Indians as, you know, still a lot of Indians still pride, um, a prize or um, sort of Western education, you know, and, um, I mean, oh, education, first of all, but, you know, the ability to come and study in London or in Oxford or Cambridge or in, you know, the big and great universities of the US. I mean, that's very, you know, it's a big part of their aspiration. And, um, you know, some people go back, some people, you know, stay and settle in the, uh, in the US and the UK, but maintain or deepen the links between the, 
you know, these countries and NGS, which, you know, is, is I think, um, on the whole, a very positive thing. I mean, the other thing is the demographic part of it is India has pretty favorable demographics from, from a, from a labor market point of view. Um, I was reading the other day that I think 2030 or 2050 or, you know, somewhere in the not too distant future, um, the labor market of India will be bigger than the combined labor markets of the US and China. Um, so, which are the next two most populous countries? So, I mean, you know, there is there is opportunity there, and if if you know a lot of Indians end up in other countries, I don't think that necessarily is going to severely uh, impact uh, India from a negative point of view, as long as they get some of these underlying structural and other issues sorted out. You mentioned Google, and I, I always think that companies that run out of ideas turn to banking, and we've seen that with with Apple recently with their credit card. But Google probably has a quite a long way to go before they run out of ideas. But it, it's an idea just popped into my head about the ability that Google would have to be involved in the banking industry would be far superior than any other bank yeah. because they have so much data. They've got so much more yeah. data than any of the banks have got and any of the governments have got to the extent yeah. that one of my long-term kind of calls was that Google would become government-owned or partly government-owned. Um, mm because of that that valuable data set that they have mm. um but it, in terms of making good investment and and loan decisions they would have a tremendous advantage so either the banks have got to try and buy into that some of that technology or like you say google would just say why don't we just circumvent the banks and just do it ourselves yeah yeah i'm i'm, I'm sure that will come into it because it's a lucrative industry um but you know if they if they're exposed to a runaway property market which then crashes which it does inevitably every sort of 18 years they will they will they will <laughs> learn the painful lessons that other companies and, and and industries have had to learn over over the last two centuries so um and so the other thing i mean these the other form of economic rent that these companies are diversifying into so google and um amazon and others um is you know things like asteroid mining and sort of the near-earth economy and so on i mean that's you know i think i i could well see the you know particularly if you have a big commodities boom in the in the 2020s and you know the cost of um capital investment in that respect come down i mean this could be a pretty prime area for all sorts of capital malinvestment um uh, as well so you know i don't think they'll be immune to some of the grosser impulses of the investment mind uh, in the future i think they'll They'll, they'll get involved. So it may not be banking, it'll be something else. And it will, there will be something, but yeah, it, I'm sure of it. It'd be an interesting element to predict the top of the market. So if, we, if we're going to go into a correction in the next sort of you know, six months, 18 months, whatever yeah. period we see the market go down and then bottom and then move up again, and then yeah. we see that happening and there's rampant inflation, then that big super cycle uh, up wave that you're, you're, you're talking about would obviously draw them into it. And then yeah. we would know that, that the market would be approaching a, a very, very significant high. And yes. so it's, so it's yes. interesting to look that far ahead and potentially plot out the way the market might, well, might operate. I mean, there are some, there are some markers. So, so um, you know, I mean, there are, there are some things which are a feature of an overheated property market, like the world's tallest, tallest, tallest building, grandest building, longest, deepest tunnel or something, you know, there's yes. this massive capital investment announcement. And it was in, a, uh, in effect um, pointed out many years ago by this economist called Richard Cantillon, 
um, uh, and you know, that, so that will be one marker, and it will be somewhere where we haven't really thought of, like Iraq or something. You know, so it just seems so, uh, you know, uh, um, so weird, uh, and you know, it, it might seem rational for whatever reason, and you know, the architects will set it, and the finances will set it as a perfectly normal thing to do. But that will be one marker, and then there will obviously be um, just a bit like Trump at in january saying you know this is the biggest bull market in you know world. what a great job i've done yeah four years rising yes. stock market i mean it's going to be someone like that saying something like that at the peak of the market yes. um and you know uh, you know and often it can be someone in the investment industry so so you get these perma bears you know who sort of for four or five years saying oh no this is ridiculous and this isn't this going over the top and isn't valuation being too you know isn't kind of outrunning fundamentals and and so on and then and then they just can't quite you know they just hold out and they hold out and then they come around uh, and the moment they come around is usually the top of the market um so that might, that be, might, some, that might be me price. <laughs> <laughs> you guys <laughs> Indeed. Say, oh, we just can't figure out what's going on so maybe there is something we've missed or maybe maybe the accounting rules for the for the um for the digital economy uh, needs to be rewritten and so uh, and so what we thought were kind of fair value actually was, you know, would be a much higher level because these new accounting rules have come out, you know, something like yeah. that. Uh, and it'll be, it'll be, if you know, it's sort of around 2026, um, it, it's, it's pretty close to the, the top of the market. I think you might've mentioned before that um, in 2006 property stocks were coming down when the broader market was going up. Now that is indeed a leading indicator. So, so, um, so uh, analysts in property stocks are, are starting to see that the market is at a point where people can't take any more sort of increasing prices and so on. Um, and um, developers are not able to shift stock as much or as quickly as before. And so they're forecasting slightly lower earnings for property stocks going forward. What they don't know is the implications for the broader economy. Um, uh, and so that's why that's such a good leading indicator at the right time in the cycle. And just to put a bit of context into the caution that that certainly I have, and I know Tim's cautious on the market generally and just looks for deep value. Um, the the reason why I've always been kind of skeptical and known that the market's fragmented is because you have you mentioned something earlier about charts. Obviously, I'm I'm a chartist and look very closely at them. You have a a banking system or a lot of the banks that just are performing absolutely awfully. And it's mm. just seemed that how can you have a property market or a broader market boom when the banks are doing so badly? And also broadly across Europe, you have an extremely fragmented stock market where you've got, for example, the Italian stock market that is still way off its 2007 high. And yeah. you've got, you know, the DAX that, that made a new high and, and has performed mm. much better. But generally speaking, You've, that what's really taken off and, and run away has been the technology stocks in America, and everything seems to be a version or a grade as, as down from that. And normally in a bull market, especially in a synchronized one, you wouldn't have so much fragmentation. So that causes that causes some alarm, but it doesn't mean uh, our previous guest Kevin Duffy was saying quite rightly, that you've got a market of stocks, not a stock market. And, and Tim also said, you know, there's 100,000 stocks out there. That's 100,000 opportunities. And you look at it on a case-by-case -case basis, 
then mm. you you do see tremendous opportunities in both directions. So mm. the, the the direction of the broader market in some ways is is less important than obviously your your stock picking ability. Um, mm. But it would be nice to get a, a just sort of a blanket. We're in a bull market. We're in a bear market. Call, but it's technically from the way I analyze markets, you you can't say that when the market is fragmenting um, because that is one of the warning signs that you really aren't in a bull market. So the Russell 2000 is nowhere near it's, well, it's it's off its all-time high, but you've got, say, the NASDAQ and the S&P that made all-time highs. So that's that invariably is a warning sign that something's not quite right. Now, what sort of shakeout you get and for how long has been the million-dollar question? And we got a pretty decent shakeout but not enough to, to didn't, really... It didn't last very long. Didn't it last didn't last very long, long. yeah. The, the other thing was, uh, you may have seen um, that there was an announcement by one of the larger hedge funds, one of the larger long-short hedge funds saying it was basically, you know, it was basically, you know, pulling up stumps yeah. and retiring from the pitch because it, it, couldn't, it couldn't find sufficient, you know, credible shorting opportunities because in a world where everything's being sprayed with money everything's going up or, or nearly everything's going up so you, you can't it was they were finding it difficult to you know to find decent shorting opportunities yeah i mean i i, I think i mean you know we're uh, a lot of people have tried to say this since the 23rd of march when we had the bottom but um i do feel there is a, another correction coming i'd maybe not quite as savage and severe and, and maybe not as low as the one that we've had already. Um, but, you know, you you tend to find a bit like after the dot-com, the first dot-com crash in the mid-cycle last cycle, you kind of had, you know, the market sort of rallied a little bit and then they went sideways during 2000 when, um, when um, you know, the US, the outcome of the US election was a bit uncertain. Uh, and then you got all the corporate scandals in 2001. And, you know, I, I wonder if, we might have something similar coming along probably particularly after the U S election um, to, to bring things down again, maybe not quite as significantly as we've already had. Um, but I, I certainly myself am not sort of, I'm, wait, I'm still waiting on the side um, uh, for, for that. Um, I, I, it's probably not totally related to the point you were making earlier, Paul, but um you know, there are, so in terms of the bull markets and, and so on, I mean, there are sort of sector, I do kind of look at sector rotations over the course of each sort of bull market. I don't have particularly long running data. And so I couldn't be more specific than maybe talking about some of the themes that I've already talked about. But you do, you know, you, you tend to find that the early stage of a, of a bull market is, you know, kind of more new economy tech related and it rotates into industrials and then into kind of the consumer discretionary and then into more defensive stuff. I mean, I do, I do feel that's a feature of, of bull markets. And actually I, I think that bank banking stocks sometimes run up a bit longer than the main market in certain circumstances. And this is partly because um, you tend to find that residential property falls before commercial um, for whatever reason, I think there is there's some sort of structural reasons for that. that that's really uh, interesting. Maybe there's like looser lending there, looser lending yeah. criteria. Yeah, um, yeah, and they're more sensitive and, to say so, in, the individual jobs or what what have you. Yeah, that, that's an interesting call. Yeah. So so then and so obviously some banks are making money out of that, and so they can go up a bit longer. But you know when banks come or whatever whoever's providing the finance for this sort of speculative element of the market. Uh, when they go down, I mean, they, those are brilliant shorting opportunities if you can jump in on them because, um, because you know, they go down very hard, potentially. Great stuff. 
So, Tim, do you think we should go to Media Picks? So I've got two this week. Um, the first is a film called Buffaloed um, with a, a, for me, a bravura performance by Zoe Deutsch in, in the lead. This is, uh, I'm reading the, the IMDB synopsis here, set in the underworld of debt collecting. Um, and she's basically a, a sort of a hustler. Who, who wants to get out of Buffalo, New York, and uh, it's 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 got a lot of aspects of the Big Short to it. So it's it's a very I, I very low rating, only six point one on IMDb, but I, I thought it was thoroughly enjoyable uh, and a nice mix of comedy and drama. Uh, and as it's set in the world of basically, you know, these are the guys that go around um, uh, in, in persuading people to to pay off sort of uh, <laughs> old old debts with 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 baseball bats and kneecaps being involved that kind of stuff so it's it very it has moments of very 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 engaging black humor um the other one which is a, on a related front so i just happened to see these these two one after the other in the last couple of days a film called bad education Oh yes, uh, tw- twenty nineteen. Cam- Cameron with- Diaz, yeah. No, no. Th- well, th- that's <laughs> oh, exactly that's bad, that's bad teacher, isn't it? Sorry, exactly. Yeah. This is this- bad. Ed- bad education suffers from having such a generic title because that's exactly what I thought as well. The Cameron Diaz film, but this is this is a twenty nineteen film called Bad Education in a very downbeat generic title. But it's it stars Hugh Jackman and it's based on a true story. And this is a se- and it also has. Um, uh, Alison Janney and Alison Janney is always worth watching. And basically, Alison, it's it's set in the world of New York's uh, Roslyn School District, and and Hugh Jackman is the like superintendent of schools. And basically, it emerges fairly early on that Alison Janney has been sort of salting away um, money, you know, taxpayer money, and committing basically fraud. And then this thing just builds and builds and builds, and it's based on a true story. So it's it's IMDb describes it as biography, comedy, and crime. So they're both kind of underworld. You know, dark, dark machinations in the financial system. Um, but but I, I enjoyed both of them. And Fantastic. they're both very, very watchable. So that's uh, Buffaloed and Bad Education. Excellent. So Akhil, what do you have for us? Okay, so um, well, I'm currently watching, I'm quite into sort of sci-fi fantasy type sort of um Programs. I'm currently watching this. You, you, you must be enjoying the um, the 2020 finale of the Human Race, then. It's it's, it's gripping, <laughs> gripping entertainment. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm watching on Netflix this um, German language um, series called Dark. I don't know oh if yes, I started watching it. Yeah, but I, uh, I I'm, I'm still trying to work out if I really like it or not. But I always find it quite intriguing to think through the implications of people traveling through time and how that changes things. I mean, you know, Back to the Future was one of my favorite films uh, growing up. Um, uh, And so, and uh, you know, you know, anything said in a dark German forest, you know, is sort of quite primeval and, um, you know, atmospheric. And so I quite, you know, I sort of, I can, I can watch those, Uh, but actually um, only the other day uh, I I was, I rewatched a 2011 film called In Time. Yes. Yes. I don't know if you've seen that, it's with uh, Justin Timberlake and um, Killian Murphy and, um, Amanda Seafried and so on. Funny, um, we talked about that. Yes, there was a um, somebody recommended it on Twitter, and I I watched it. I, d- I wasn't that into it actually, I have to say. But you liked it. I quite liked it. I quite liked it. I quite liked it. So so well, the reason that I mean, you know, look, Justin Timberlake's not exactly Laurence Olivier or anything like that. But um, uh, the reason I liked it is because it's kind of this sort of metaphor for their you know their view of how the economy works. You know, you've got this sort of without giving too much away, you've got this. Uh, you know, your, the currency of the economic system is time, which, you know, to a certain extent is a bit like money because, you know, money buys you time to do, you know, leisure activities and so on. It's got sort of elements of Logan's run to it, hasn't it? 
It d- indeed. And, um, you know, there's someone at the centre who's kind of basically hoarding all this stuff and kind of, you know, manipulating the rest of society um, uh, to uh, and, and keeping certain groups of people down and so on. I found that quite interesting. Now, the reason that I rewatched it is because I thought if I'm correct in some of these calls that, you know, there'll be a major financial crisis in the late 2020s, wouldn't it be great if I could somehow uh, create some kind of film you know, maybe set in some dystopian future where it's basically a grand metaphor for the system and trying to explain to people this is how the thing works and how it kind of goes through recurring periods of boom and bust. Uh, and so if you've got any amongst your listeners, any potential screenwriters or film directors who are intrigued by that possibility, they should give me a, give me a call. Well, you're, you're, you're Paul, talking. It's you're, funny, it's funny, funny you should say, say that. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I make short films and I'm making a uh, writing. Oh, right. Yeah. So I'm, I'd be, I have a number of feature film projects, uh, on the go so definitely be happy to talk all about right it. okay yeah. well let's talk then let's talk <laughs> let's talk we but, were there at the inception of this gorgeous idea we were there we saw him take it out of the tree and put it in his pocket it's all it's, it's all right I'm, I'm beginning to get rather tearful now <laughs> <laughs> excellent well we'll definitely have to stay in touch with this um yeah. so my one for this week is going to be one that I think is perfect for you, Akhil, which is, if you haven't seen it, it's a film called The Forecaster. And it oh, is yes. ba- it is based, oh, so you've obviously already seen it. So it's based- No, on- I've not seen it. I've not seen it. Ah, I've, I've heard of it. Yeah. The, I think the second person this week who's mentioned it to me. Oh, okay. So it's, um, it's uh, about the guy who set up Princeton Economics. And yeah. Apparently he, his name's, is it Martin Armstrong, oh, I think. Martin from, Armstrong. From so, yeah. yeah, Martin Armstrong. And he apparently created a model that was so good at predicting the economy, the authorities mm. like wanted to take it off him and mm. did so. So that's the premise of, of the film, but it's absolutely fascinating. And what was interesting is within the, within the still of the, the actual documentary, um, there was a cycle. I, like, I looked at the cycles. There was a chart of all the cycles. And mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure how you, how you uh, relate this to the, the year, mm-hmm. but it said uh, 2020.5. So I wasn't sure whether yeah. that meant like five months into or obviously no, half six. Off. It'd be half the year. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or indeed half the year. So there would be a cycle change halfway through. So that was around half the year was like, what was it? Second of July, or depending on when you when you mm. count it, but it was, I think, around the first of well, second or second or third of July. So I was really intrigued to see whether there'd be a major cycle change around that point. For many reasons, I'm really interested to see how well that cycle pans out. And it's been great to have someone on the show talking about cycles as well. It's on my list of things I must see. Um, I have I have studied Martin Armstrong's stuff a little bit. So he's he's got the sort of um, the pi cycle is kind of what you know um the the value of pi in days of about 3141 is in in um as days is about 8.6 years and so i think he has a sort of a 17 year cycle as well um so yeah i mean it's very interesting i think it works quite actually rather well for the stock market not not quite so well for kind of real estate and so on but uh, it's very it's very very interesting Akil, if our listeners would like to get uh, get to read a bit of your research or or find you, how do how would they do that? Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, so Akil G Patel, um, 
and I'm not as prolific on Twitter as Tim is. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, don't think many people are. <laughs> um, I'm also currently, so the main sort of subscription service that I write for at the moment is called Property Share Market Economics, uh, which I um, set up in November with my friend Phil Anderson, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Uh, and I'm also doing a monthly update for South Bank Investment Research as part of their publication, Frontier Tech Investor. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an absolute pleasure and so interesting. And wish you all the best with your research. And if you see any major changes or anything that you'd like to update us on, we'd love to have you back on the show. Oh, I'd be more than happy to. I've really enjoyed it. Actually, sorry, can I just do one last plug? Of course. Um, I'm I'm, um, in the process of writing a book and and thanks, Tim, for introducing me to the people at Harriman House. Um, So the working title is the secret wealth advantage, how to profit from the hidden order in markets. Um, well, it's a working title. I need to come up with something slightly snappier than that. That sounds but pretty good I'm, to me. I think I'd buy that. <laughs> oh, very good. Um, so there's one other person other than my parents then, I think. <laughs> so um, I'm trying to, basically I'm trying to document and, and set out how the cycle works and how then investors can take advantage of it. So uh, that may be of interest to your listeners. Um, I'm hoping to get the first draft done by the end of the year and um, hopefully out to publication by May or June next year. Fantastic. Well, best of luck with that. And yeah, you'll have to come Thanks back so on the much. show. Give us, give us a plug when it's ready to go. Fantastic. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Akil. All the best. Thanks, Thanks. Cheers, Tim. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye. And thank you very much to Tim. And thank you so much for listening. And we will catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.